We've had 500 years of brutal, violent colonialism. And if we want to atone for that, reverse for that, it's not going to happen with nice essays and nice words. That's not, en it's not enough. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use this medium. It's just not enough. We need actual change. And, and also discuss what can be done to reverse five centuries of, of brutality, you know? I think that's a very important question that we're not really engaging with. It seems like people think that speaking about it is enough. It's really not enough. I, I, I don't know exactly also how to deal with that, but we need a, a different solution because just nice words is just, just not enough. And just apologies, it's, it's just not enough. It's not going to change much. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. To learn more about the podcast or to find out information about the people, events, reference, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 5, where I spoke with Wilfredo Furtado, art critic, writer, stylist, and deputy editor of Contemporary And. Will has published with Freeze, Sleep Magazine, and more. We discussed the development and continuation of colonialism in art museums and art biennials as well as the controversies surrounding an Afrofuturist exhibition in Berlin that failed to feature a Black artist. We also discussed Will's efforts to democratize writing in Latin America and the African continent through his work at Contemporary N. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Your work cuts across at the intersections of art, museums, decolonization, and beyond. Can you tell me how you first started your artistic practice? My artistic practice started with writing, really. I mean, I studied journalism and media in the UK, and that means that you do everything that's part of this industry, so uh, from photography to writing. And then I went into writing because it was cheaper in the end. So that's how I developed my practice. And initially, I focused more on culture in general. And then slowly, I started noticing some odd things. And of course, the discourse on post-colonialism and decolonization started growing and it really spoke to me. And I realized that actually I had a lot of things to say about it as well. And so, yeah, that's how I started writing more about it. And then a couple of years ago, I joined Contemporary and as deputy editor, and that really solidified my decolonial practice. And, and during that time, I also started developing my artistic practice, doing more videos and working with images. And yeah, I'm still doing that. Can you describe some of the images and videos that you produce? Yeah. So first, I just finished or about to finish a video that I shot in the Arabian Gulf. And I, I shot a video there. I've been there twice. And I shot a video there the second time I went. Because the first time I went, I went into a museum uh, in Muscat. And I saw something I'd never seen in my life before. I was, I was born in Portugal. And so I grew up then until my mid-teens. And in this museum, I saw on a display an explanation of what the Portuguese had done there. And they, I mean, they said it very plainly how they had invaded Muscat and had 
you know, cut people's noses off and things like this. And I've never seen that in my life because what they teach in school is how the discoveries were great and they were saviors and heroes. And then for the first time in my life, I was confronted with that in an official way. And so the second time I went, I, I made a video about, well, about that, but also how colonialism keeps evolving and shape-shifting. And so, for instance, despite the fact that Oman has this museum, at the same time, if I had a passport from other former colonies of Portugal, I wouldn't be able to get into Oman without a visa. Whereas with my Portuguese passport, I can. And so that is still colonialism, you know? And so in, in my video, I sort of look at these different things. So you're exploring how colonialism in some ways separates the objects that might have come from a particular place, maybe the African continent, in this case, Muscat, and how that circulation prevents post-colonial subjects from acquiring and accessing those materials, correct? Yes, and how these structures keep just evolving, you know. So post-colonialism is just the, actually the wrong term for a lot of things that we talk about. So what term would you use? I call my practice decolonial or anti-colonial practice. And so when we speak about colonialism, well, I actually would just use colonialism because colonialism hasn't ended and post just means the end of direct rule. <laughs> and so if we change a whole country's language, that is still colonial. And, and so until that is not reversed, it's still colonialism. So. Yeah, we still live under colonialism, 100%. So you're an artist, and the art world is mired in heaps of money, biennials, festivals, and museums that hold on to quite expensive materials. How is colonialism coded in art spaces, particularly art museums, art galleries, and art biennials, in your opinion? I'm currently working on a book about art, culture, and capitalism and colonialism. And one of the chapters is about the art museum as a colonial institution, a colonial construction, whereby it started by wealthy European people creating a space where they could show their possessions, bought or looted. And that's the history of the art museum. And so colonialism still exists in in the art institutions because the same structures remain and we can see that by the people who are purchasing art the kind the kind of art that is purchased how much is being paid for it who is welcomed and allowed into into the museums in a significant way and how these people are treated and who is offered to work at, at these institutions and at which levels they're allowed to work. And so in a nutshell, art industries are still colonial industries because of the way that they value the art object and the art star, but how they don't value the people who, who are associated with the art objects. And I'm speaking specifically about art by people of colour or from the global south. And so that's why the conversation around 
decolonization is very strong in the art industry right now because this industry is the prime example of colonialism in culture, actually. And so until structural change doesn't really happen in the art industries, then colonialism is still going to live. And of course, looted artworks, restitution is a very big topic, and we're having discussions around that. And there's been a new proposal of uh, how to make that happen. And it still hasn't happened. We, we, we're just talking about that right now. And that's where we are right now. We, having, we are aware of the colonial history of our museums and how our industries work. Uh, and we're having discussions around that, but the actual structural change is happening very, very slowly. And Germany is a prime example of that. You know, we have the Nefertiti at the Neues Museum, and Germany refused to return Nefertiti, claiming that the sculpture is safer here and that the whole world can see it if it's in Berlin. But at the same time, they refuse uh, visas to most of the people in this world. There are ways in which various art collectives and groups try to challenge the art world. And early vestiges of that is something like the Gorilla Girls. And then even here in Berlin, there are collectives that have been trying to challenge colonialism as well and sexism. How do you see collectivity and collective art groups as being one way or praxis for challenging these power structures? I think it's a really effective way of bringing about change. A really good example, I think, is decolonize this place because they go beyond just, you know, nice words and nice essays. Because, I mean, we've had 500 years of brutal, violent colonialism. And if we want to atone for that, reverse for that, it's not going to happen with nice essays and nice words. That's not, en that's not enough. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use this medium. It's just not enough. We need actual change. And, and also discuss what can be done to reverse five centuries of, of brutality, you know? I think that's a very important question that we're not really engaging with. It seems like people think that speaking about it is enough. It's really not enough. I, I, I don't know exactly also how to deal with that, but we need a, a different solution because just nice words is just, just not enough. And just apologies, it's just not enough, it's not going to change much. And so, going back to my example, I think decolonize this place is a really good example of collective action because, yeah, they go beyond words and they stage protests and they also have very specific demands which often, yeah, are about the system, about who, who is in power and they question that and make demands as to who they think should be in power. And they invert the system by claiming agency for themselves um, or claiming agency or trying to give agency to the people who are at the bottom of the pyramid, because usually it's the other way around. The people, quote unquote, don't have a say on who gets to the positions of power. And I think that's a very crucial point. How does your identity fall within the spectrum of colonial histories and legacies, and to what extent does your identity shape your practice? Well, I am a product of colonialism. I mean, my mother comes from Guatemala, my dad comes from Cape Verde, and both of these countries are colonial constructions. And so 
I have African, Native American, and European ancestry, and that means that I have a very intersectional way of existing and also looking at the world. And so my identity informs my worldview in which everyone can suffer and benefit from colonialism within a spectrum. And it's all about identifying where that happens and identifying our own, my own accountability within this system. Can you tell me a little bit about how your current position as a writer, as someone who's able to have a voice vis-a-vis contemporary Anne, helps to democratize and or provide more voices to people, artists from the global south? We live in a white supremacist, anti-black world, and that permeates really everything that exists on this planet. And so my work as a writer, an editor and commissioner, uh, especially with Contemporary Anne, tries to and, and does those biases by platforming artists who have African ancestry wherever they are in the world and whoever they may be. And that's as far as a magazine can go. Although we also run uh, critical writing workshops across the continent and in other parts of the world as well. But at the same time, in order for the art to be platformed, it also has to exist in the first place. And so there's, there's certain limitations as to what we can do to undo uh, these biases, but at least with a media platform, there's already a lot that we can do. When did you first move to Berlin and why did you move to Berlin? I moved to Berlin in 2012 and I moved here because I was in London before and London was just too expensive and I I, I wanted to invest more in my artistic and creative career and for that I just needed some time. And simply because Berlin was a slightly or oh, a cheaper place back then, uh, it allowed me to to have that time for myself. And of course, that's a privilege, you know, just having this extra time for yourself to figure out what you want to do. It's a huge privilege. And it's something that all artists should deal with, like the privilege of having, you know, time to think about things. There's this video that The Guardian did with Lubaina Himid uh, about her, the residency she did at the magazine and and she was explaining how she was analyzing a lot of magazine covers and newspaper front pages and she pointed out that she often gets accused of overlooking things or overthink, looking at things overly which is true but also like that's a privilege in itself but the point was that she basically just spotted loads of like really like problematic uh, front pages and and she was pointed out that often you know people in this industry just don't have enough time to like spot these things Uh, and yeah and so she as an artist over looks over things uh, overly yeah which is in itself also a privilege I think. So in the summer of 2019 here in Berlin there was an Afrofuturist exhibition at the Kunsthaus Bethanien. And you wrote an article entitled, quote, an Afrofuturism show with no black artists. What went wrong at Berlin's Kunsthaus Bethanien? How did you come to write this article? What happened? The name of the exhibition was called 
space is the place and it didn't quite address certain issues with respect to representation. Can you describe the exhibition and your critiques of the exhibition? Yeah, so at the Kusnerhaus Britannien, the directors and curators decided to put on this show that it wasn't solely about Afrofuturism, but it was also based on it. It had a very strong reference to Afrofuturism. And so they used a lot of the language that we use when speaking about Afrofuturism, you know, like discrimination against black people or dark-skinned people. But then like, at the same time, the show featured no black artists, not even an African artist, and had mostly white male artists. I mean, it's a, you know, a glaring example of, well, first of all, tokenism and the tone deaf attitude that people have towards the lasting effects of colonialism. And so I was approached by Frizz's editor to write a piece about this. And this was based on my, my previous work and my, my previous comments on well, the arts in general from my own perspective. And so I just wrote a comment on the show. I tried to like dissect really what was going on and 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 why why this keeps happening. You know why this type of you know tokenism and and abuse within the arts keeps happening, which is essentially structural. And in in the article, I interviewed a couple of people. One of them being the group uh, Soup du Jour, which is a collective that is trying to uh, pinpoint abuses in the arts and and bring about change by. Yeah, discussing these issues, uh, but also making demands and very clear demands. And I spoke to them and uh, we discussed how there's actually many different reasons for these things to happen. And, and for instance, one of them was the fact that art workers live and work in precarity. And so we're actually not encouraged to, to think critically uh, and definitely not to criticise the institution you work for. And so, yeah, that creates a hindrance in, in flagging these sort of issues and racism in exhibition making internally, for instance. But also one of the major reasons for this to happen and why it keeps happening and why, why it will keep happening is because of Germany's colonial legacy, but also society's response to it and the simplification of race issues and racism to oh, unless you send someone to concentration camp, it's not racism. And so this dumping down and simplification of racism contributes to racism just not being addressed in this country. Yeah, and also the fact that Germans don't really engage with their full colonial history. You've lived in the UK and you've also lived in Germany. Can you explain or elaborate on how these two countries, and specifically within the context of the art world, deal with their colonial past or don't deal with it? Because you're describing that Germany hasn't fully dealt with its colonial history, specifically, I'm imagining you're referring to its colonialism on the African continent in places like Namibia, Tanzania, and beyond. And Britain, of course, also had an empire that stretched for a good part of the world. So can you tell us a bit how they varied? Yeah, so going back to the previous example, at the end of my opinion piece, I, I suggested that Mr. Tannert, who still is the director of Kunstlerhaus Britannien, should resign because our institution deserves to be led by serious professionals who are aware of the continual legacies of colonialism, which is entrenched in our culture. 
And then after that, there was a few comments from other people, for instance, like suggesting people who should replace him. And all of that. I thought that was really interesting. But then in the end, nothing happened. So he's still there. And so when you compare that to other instances, like for instance, like in the UK or in the US, where Candace, who was at the board of the Whitney, a similar situation happened, decolonized this place, made pressure for him to resign because he co-owns company that creates what canisters are used in Palestine yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in the end he did resign he stepped out and in the UK there was a similar story with the director of the Serpentine Gallery and she also resigned straight away whereas in Germany that still hasn't happened and somehow they yeah they just think it's okay then again just goes to prove my point that people are not really serious about decolonization and admitting and being accountable for yeah their own oppression. So you're pointing to decolonization not just as a rhetorical act but structural change and that in order for people, countries that benefited from colonialism to make amends they have to have material, leadership, regime change in many ways. And beyond that, it sounds like in the U.S. context and in the U.K. context that some of that structural change has been happening, especially with protest. And in the German case, that's not... No, it's yeah. not apparent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be a numbers game. You know, there's just, you know, less people of color in Germany. And, uh, and despite the fact that Germany had colonies in Africa, we don't have a sizable com- uh, African community in Germany. That's for other reasons. And so perhaps because of that, the pressure is not as strong in Germany. I want to turn to one of the texts that you've written uh, entitled Art Institutions as a Means of Sociopolitical Actualization. And in that text, you examine the ways that museums are biased colonial constructions. You write, quote, Museums claim to be nonpartisan and therefore neutral in political matters, though history has shown that they have long served to promote the ideas of the governments in power, or at the very least, obscure their violences. In my view, the task for artists, art workers, and global publics is not to abolish museums per se, but to work with and within them in full awareness of the power dynamics in place, their history, and how they can change and dictate how we work, as well as how knowledge is produced and disseminated and to whom and why some artifacts are prioritized over others." End quote. Can you explain to me how you come to reach this conclusion of working within the system as opposed to for some people they think that museums should be abolished altogether? The first part of the statement is in relation to colonialism going hand in hand with capitalism and the art industry also going hand in hand with capitalism. And so if we're not willing to address the role of capitalism within art industries, we're also not really serious about addressing colonialism and how it still lives within art industries and the world at large. Whereas the second point of the statement was more in reference to Audre Lorde's um, statement that uh, we can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And so while I think that can be applied in many cases, it can be applied everywhere. 
And so it's not about dismantling the museum, but working what we have already. And so I understand that many people are mad and angry about the world we live in and inequalities, especially in the arts and, and creative industries where in inequalities really are glaring. But my comment is about, in reference to making the revolution happen with the tools that we have and as a daily struggle not a one-day revolution. And so really is about significant and serious structural change uh, rather than radical per se. So social media in many ways has become a way to democratize the art world, the music world, and writing insofar that people who may not necessarily have connections to major publications or museums can promote their work on social media platforms. To what extent do you see social media as being a way to promote not just your work, but the work of artists who may not necessarily be part of the canon? Social media has definitely democratized the arts world. However, it's also very easy to well, get lost um, like on social media, or your work can also get lost on social media because of the amount of images and content that exist and circulate in social media. But also the danger of social media is to reduce your ideas and concepts and philosophies to an image, reduce reduce everything to an image. And as as Deleuze said, capitalism is um, essentially illiterate. And so it's also very easy for your work to become co-opted by capitalism. And so personally, to go against that, I use my, my the images that I post on social media. I tend to publish them with with text as well, either in in the in the post, in the text bit, or post text as images. And of course, text as images uh, don't uh, circulate as as well as an actual image. But I think it's also important to keep that in mind that your images will be co-opted and reduced to entertainment. And so it's 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 up to you to to reverse that by by clarifying what your work is about and what you're trying to do. You've done decolonial workshops and have had engagements in North Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, and beyond. Can you describe how those workshops and engagements have allowed you to connect to artists and art workers who are doing creative work in the global south and what comes out of those workshops? So Contemporary Island does a lot of work beyond editorial or line and print. And one of those things are the critical writing workshops that we do across the continent of Africa, but also across North and South America. And so in some of these workshops, or in most of them, we develop critical thinking, but also critical writing skills. And often we create magazines out of these workshops with the students. A lot of the thinking that we do is to analyze images and sort of try to identify how they were created and what are the colonial legacies that are present in these decisions of image making, but also of exhibition making. And so, in, for instance, in some of these workshops, uh, there was a specific one where they had to curate a show at the end of the year and 
after the first session, they had realized that actually many of the artists they had invited for their exhibition were all almost European or Western. And so, yeah, and many of them were really thankful for making them think about these things because a lot of what colonialism does is conditioning us to think a certain way that happens to benefit, you know, Europeans. Decolonization, on the one hand, is about a kind of political act, perhaps a creative act, and it's about reflecting on reshuffling power dynamics. But at the same time, it's also about having a vision of a different kind of future. How do you envision a decolonial future, and what would that look like to you? One of the main pillars of colonialism is divide and conquer. And so I am specifically looking at this pillar of colonialism and I'm trying to undo it. And actually, when you look at a lot of uh, indigenous cultures, there is a strong emphasis on how we are all connected. And for instance, Cosmovision, which is the worldview of many indigenous peoples in Central and South America, Cosmovision is about the interconnectedness of the universe, how we're all connected. And also how everything in this world has dignity. And so it's about erasing hierarchies, which is the complete opposite of what colonialism is, which is to place everything into a hierarchy. And so an Afrofuturism, for instance, complements Cosmovision because Afrofuturism is about bringing disparate elements together and on the same level, and getting rid of hierarchies. And so for me, a decolonial practice and future is about solidarity within or among people from the global south. Actually, did you want to explain Fredo? Well, yeah, because that's my, that's what I usually, the name that I usually use for like my visual art practice. Um, which I still haven't, I don't know, I first thought that I wanted to keep those two separate, but then they always come together. And um, yeah, and so, um, yeah, I, I think I, I'm using those two together now. Um, yeah, because I mean, they're all my names, <laughs> actually, which is Fredo, was, it's sort of like my, my, my middle name that my mum gave me and uh, and I don't know, I kind of like grew up really embarrassed of it. Um, but then it was, it was exactly through finding my own roots when I found my, my family uh, in Guatemala that really uh, sort of like um, pushed me into um, like exploring like my, myself and my art practice to its full potential. And so, yeah, keeping this name has a lot of meaning to me. So thank you, Will, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This episode featured previously recorded voices based in Berlin, Germany. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you're listening to Decolonization in Action podcast, co-hosted with the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. <laughs>
I would like to express my gratitude to Christina Comer for her assistance in editing and production. As always, there are a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast and to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We want to continue to support the scholars, activists, and artists who are putting decolonization into action. Thank you for joining us.